Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 129. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Just got back from Dragon Con in Atlanta. About five hours of total sleep, 14 hours of total driving back with a hangover. And now I'm gonna read you some stories. Cause I love you, man. You're, you totally deserve it. You're like, you're always there for me. I'm sorry I threw up on your autographed photo of Patrick Stewart, dude. I'm sorry that I lost your car and in that estuary. And, and dude, I'm sorry I hit on your brother. I totally thought he was your sister. I mean, they have the same colored hair. But I'm, I'm also sorry that I tried to hit on someone that that. That thought was your sister, even if it was just a genetically related doppelganger. Dude, I, I can't blame it on the booze. I should have known better. And your brother should get a haircut. And we should just forget about the whole weekend. Just listen to a hundred word story, dude. This week's Drabble is called Telltale Signs and comes to us from Ralph Camelli. Ralph's one of our favorites. He's been published in Weird Tales, McSweeney's, The Morning News, The Big Jewel, and oft on the Drabblecast with stories like Sheltered from Two Trifectas Ago and My Mustache, A Love Story from More Trifectas Ago. The hitchhiker I killed had a bushy mustache. Now, every morning, I wake up wearing that identical mustache, fully formed, announcing to all the world my crime. I hoped I was imagining it, but my buddy Carl confirmed it was real. I tried shaving it, yet it always returns, thick and full, the next morning. I don't care. I won't let it beat me. I'm worried about Carl, though. The magic mustache has made him curious, suspicious. He's much better looking than I am, with piercing eyes, thin nose, and square jaw. I wonder which feature I'll wake up with tomorrow. feature story this week comes from Tim Pratt, and it's called Annabelle's Alphabet. Tim's one of my personal favorite writers, and his work has appeared in the best of American short stories, the year's best fantasy, and other nice places. His short fiction has won a Hugo Award, and almost won a Nebula and Fantasy Award. He's currently publishing an online serial urban fantasy novella, Bone Shop, which you can find at marlamason.net forward slash bone shop. We'll have that in our show notes. I've just started it a few weeks ago, and I'm thoroughly digging. So, without further ado, Annabelle's Alphabet by Tim Pratt. (laughs) 
A is for Annabelle, who turned 10 today. She is on a birthday picnic with her parents, wearing what her mother calls her Alice in Wonderland dress, and the warm air smells of summer. Annabelle hears chimes in the wind, but her parents, arguing on a blanket, don't seem to notice. Annabelle might follow the music later through the yellow and blue field of wildflowers into the woods. The chimes seem to call her name three syllables. Annabelle. She laughs and claps her hands. Her parents murmur. B is for butterflies. Annabelle sees one now, yellow wings fluttering through the long grass over the hills. She chases it until it lands, then leans over to watch it resting on a blossom. Annabelle thinks it might be looking at her, but she isn't sure if butterflies have eyes. Her father collects butterflies, pins them down and seals them under glass. She's seen him in the garage where he keeps his collection, looking at them. Sometimes, when he doesn't know she's there, he rips off their wings, and that frightens her. Annabelle shivers and waves her hand at the butterfly. Go on, she whispers. Fly away. It does. C is for cages. Once, at another girl's birthday party, Annabelle saw parakeets, yellow and blue, singing in a cage. She looked at them for a minute and decided to set them free. She tugged at the cage door, but a broad, soft woman in a flowered dress stopped her. No, dear, she said. Don't let them out. I want them to fly, Annabelle said, her eyes suddenly hot and full of tears. No. The woman repeated, leading Annabelle back to cake and ice cream. Their wings are clipped. They couldn't fly anyway. Do their wings ever grow back? Annabelle asked. But the woman didn't answer. D is for dreams, of course. Annabelle dreams of green places, and she often dreams of flying, soaring over woods and water, singing as she goes. One morning, when she was five years old, she said, I flied, Mommy. Last night I flied. Her mother's eyes went wide, and she made a squeaking noise, as if choking on her eggs. In her dreams, her father said sharply, looking up from his paper. She means in her dreams. Everyone has that dream. Annabelle's mother nodded and looked down at her plate. Annabelle remembers that. Even five years later, she has a very good memory, but far enough back it turns to mist and shadows and pine trees. E is for earthworms. Annabelle's father is a weekend fisherman, and there's a patch of black dirt behind the house where he digs for worms. Once, young and dirty need, Annabelle watched him dig Caterpillars, she said when he pulled up a long worm, wiggling and dropped it in the bucket. Not caterpillars, her father said. Worms. Worms? 
Annabelle said, scrunching up her face. Yes, caterpillars are fuzzy and they turn into butterflies. Worms are slimy and they don't turn into anything. But he raised his finger in front of Annabelle's wide gold-flecked eyes. If you cut a worm in half, both halves go on living. He took out his pocket knife, laid a worm on a shattered piece of cinder block, and sliced it neatly in half. There was no blood, and both halves wriggled wildly. See? Annabelle looked for a moment, solemn, and then said, Put it back together, Daddy. He frowned, picking up the two wiggling half-worms and dropping them in his bucket. I can't, Annabelle. There's no way to put them together again. Oh, she said in a quiet voice, but she wondered. F is for fairies. Annabelle's mother is religious, and there are pictures and statues of angels all over the house with their white wings and pale, pretty faces. When Annabelle was younger, she called them fairies. No, her mother said sternly. They're angels. But they got wings, Annabelle said. Her mother embraced her in freckled arms. I know, darling, but they're angels, I promise. And you're my little angel. I don't got wings, Annabelle said scornfully. G is for garden. Annabelle's mother has one, with roses and posies and tulips and other blossoms, and in the summer they buzz with bees. Once Annabelle was sent to pull weeds, but instead she took up flowers and wove them into her red hair and made chains for her wrists. Her mother squawked and shouted when she saw, but Annabelle was serene, sitting on the lawn with her skirts spread around her. She was a flower. H is for hair, sunset red on Annabelle's head. Her father's hair is sandy blonde and short. Her mother's is flat brown and cut in a bob. Annabelle's hair falls in curly waves nearly to her knees. It has never been cut. When Annabelle's mother brushes her daughter's hair, as she does every morning, it never snags or tangles. Her mother tells herself it must be the shampoo she uses but it certainly doesn't do that for her own hair. She chooses not to think about it. Annabelle's mother chooses not to think about a great many things. I is for innocence, and today, as every day, Annabelle is drifting farther from that state. Her father watches her sometimes as she plays, frowning, and sometimes he grins like a jack-o'-lantern but he's never laid a hand on her, even to punish. Sometimes he seems nervous when he hugs her, and he never touches her back for long. Annabelle's innocence is still complete, but today she turned 10, and as she grows through double digits, that innocence will disappear. For some things, some reconnections, time is growing short. Jay is for joy, and that's what Annabelle was for her parents, or was meant to be, or could have been. She's a gift from God, Annabelle's mother said when they got their newfound daughter home. But she was hesitant, 
trembling. She put her hands across her belly. From the kitchen, she heard a rasp, and her young husband said, she is a gift. There's just something to take care of first. Another rasp, metal on stone, and Annabelle's mother closed her eyes. Get it sharp, she said. Very sharp, so it doesn't hurt much. I'll boil some water. Somewhere in the house, far from the green places she'd known, baby Annabelle lay on her stomach and cried. K is for knives. Annabelle has dim memories masquerading as nightmares. Even at 10 years old, her father has to cut her food. She can't stand to touch a knife. She doesn't like meat anyway, because it reminds her too much of her own muscles moving under the skin. She has muscles in her back that she can flex, but they don't move anything at all. She stares at the wall as her father saws away at the food on her plate. She can't stand to look at the knife, or at him wielding it. L is for lost things. Annabelle loses things a lot, but her father almost never does. He's only once lost anything that she can remember. Listening from the top of the stairs, Annabelle heard him shout at her mother, They're gone. They were wrapped in cloth and locked in the chest, and now they're gone. What did you do with them? And her mother, Nothing. I hated them the way you brooded over them. But I wouldn't touch the things. Well, then where did they go? Her mother, quietly. Maybe they flew away. M is for music and for mystery. And this is both. Those chimes. Ringing over the hills from the trees. They aren't birdsong, and they aren't bells. And Annabelle's parents, just a few feet away on the blanket, don't hear a thing. It is Annabelle's birthday, and she got a pink bike with a basket and a new kite to fly. The kite is in the grass, forgotten, and her bike is back at home. Annabelle wonders if she'll be getting another gift. N is for normal, and some things aren't, and those things need to be cut right out. Annabelle's father knows that, and so does her mother, though it hurts her more. Annabelle doesn't think about it. Normal is what things are, and only things that aren't what they are can be wrong. O is for outside, and that's Annabelle's earliest memory of being outside tiny in the forest, looking up at stars and pine trees. Lost, like the baby in the rhyme that came tumbling down when the bough broke and the cradle fell. Then came voices and two tall people scooping her from the forest floor, exclaiming, turning her over. Annabelle doesn't know what the memory means, but her mother sings lullabies, and that's one of the voices and her father tells stories in measured tones, and that's the other. Sometimes Annabelle sneaks out of the house and lies down in her backyard, 
and looks up at the sky through the pines. P is for picnic, and what a wonderful idea that was. Annabelle would love a birthday picnic, her mother said, and it's such a pretty day, but where should we go? There's a field I know, by a nice stretch of woods, her father said thoughtfully. They packed the car and took Annabelle and her new kite to the field. Neither of her parents seemed to remember this place, though they'd often taken walks in the woods here when they were younger. A strange cloud covers their memories, filling their heads. They'd last seen this field on a summer night like this one, exactly ten years before. They'd come to watch the butterflies. This was before he started dipping the butterflies, wings and all, in chloroform, before he locked them under glass, before, but only just before, a matter of minutes perhaps, they found Annabelle. Q is for quiet, and Annabelle is that. Even the soughing of the wind has stopped, and her parents are murmuring, sipping lemonade. She can still hear the chimes if she holds her breath, but they're fading. Even the beating of her heart is enough to make her miss notes. Annabelle. Yes, the chimes are fading, and if she intends to follow them, she must do so soon. R is for ripping. When the knife went dull, when things weren't quite severed and man hands pulled and blood welled up. R is for the rasp of the knife on the whetstone, but some things are too attached to be cut neatly, no matter how sharp the blade, and they tear. S is for scars. Annabelle has two on her back, shiny and wide, running vertically down her shoulder blades. Her mother told her that she stumbled and fell on a board with nails on it, and that's where the scars came from. Her father told her that she was scratched by a dog when she was a baby, and that's where she got them. Sometimes her muscles spasm beneath the scars, and often in the morning, after a dream of flying, her shoulders ache. T is for time, and Annabelle feels it shortening and shortening as the shadows lengthen and the sun slides west. U is for umbilicus, the first connection between mother and daughter, which leaves its mark on the child's belly forever. But Annabelle has no navel. Her stomach is as smooth as the skin of a peach, unmarked and untouched. Annabelle's mother thinks sometimes of umbilical cords being cut with scissors, of that fundamental severance, which she and Annabelle never had. Instead of scissors, there was a knife, and it wasn't a cord that was cut not the connection between mother and daughter that was severed, but a different connection altogether. And now Annabelle is in the field on her birthday, and it seems that while some connections must remain sundered forever, others can be rejoined. V is for vigilant, and Annabelle's mother is that. She always keeps an eye out for her daughter. She can't have more children, that thought is always on top of her mind, and she rarely lets Annabelle out of her sight. But now her attention wanders. She even forgets Annabelle for a moment. The thoughts fly out of her head, and she's back in her girlhood, laughing with her new husband, laughing before Annabelle 
and knives and grisly silky mementos that mysteriously disappear. Just as Annabelle is now disappearing over the hills toward the forest. W is for worried and Annabelle knows her parents will be, but the chiming is louder now. A part of her is calling her and that's more important than anything and she runs across the fields into the trees, the song in her head like her own voice, her own song, calling her home. And as she runs, she can almost feel herself flying. X is for xenophobia, the hate of the stranger, and Annabelle doesn't know that word, and neither does her mother, and while her father does know it, he would never ascribe it to himself. Yet his daughter is a stranger, and his wife also in many ways, and himself most of all. And he hates them all, really. When he sits in the basement tearing the wings from butterflies and remembering the night they found Annabelle, hate fills him. You can't turn something into something it's not, he thinks at the picnic, looking at the fat clouds float effortlessly by. Flying. And then his wife says, Where's Annabelle? And things happen very fast. Why is for yell, which Annabelle's mother does. She stands on the blanket and shouts her daughter's name. Her husband stands, frowning, hands clenched on a napkin that he rips in half, and they both shout for their daughter, who is gone. And they look for the flutter of a blue dress, for curly red hair. But there's nothing, not even in the trees. There's only... Z is for Zephyr, the gentle west wind coming up suddenly strong over the field from the trees, blowing into the shouting faces of Annabelle's mother and father. But only the wind answers them blowing as though buffeted by a million wings. And then, like apple blossoms blowing free, like silk streamers in the air, a hundred thousand sunset red and golden butterflies burst from the trees in the forest, flying. And after it all, Annabelle knows that she is not a worm, or an angel, or a flower. She is something else, Something of the green. Something like a butterfly that lost its wings, but after a time, regained them. Ooh, twist ending. I really thought she was gonna turn out to be a worm. I'm pretty sure this story was either about the loss of innocence and coming of age, or it was about male circumcision. You've got some nice opening flower analogies to support the first point, but you've also got some blatant worm dicing to support the second point. I can't, Annabelle. There's no way to put them together again. Ah, the coming of age. You know, we used to have to hunt big badass animals in order to get there. Now we just kind of awkwardly fumble through it with acne and a bad attitude. Let's do some story feedback. 
We ran a story four weeks ago called Ghosts and Simulations by Ruthanna Emrys, a story about a man working for a company that uploads the consciousnesses of the deceased into computer programs, effectively making them immortal and socially awkward. This story got resounding woots. The Brog said, Very easily my favorite Drabblecast. Very beautifully written, and the concept is just haunting. Pardon the pun. And Savoy liked it too, saying, I really liked this too. I felt it was pretty certain that by the end the protagonist was leaning toward disagreeing with the practice, and I felt that the author did a good job of illustrating that whether or not the simulations were a good thing wasn't a black or white issue for the protagonist, since things like that seldom are in real life. Abby Hilton made a critique, saying, I realize that the point was a speculation on the nature of existence, but I couldn't help feeling that the interactive possibilities for the ghosts were unimaginative. They seemed to be living in an early version of the internet, with nothing but chat rooms. Won't they be likely to jump into Second Life, or its futuristic equivalent, play World of Warcraft all day long, listen to a lot of podcasts, troll message boards, do digital art? Forget giving live lectures. How about recording them and posting them on their websites? Can they not email? Why do families have to come to the facility at all? If the ghosts were actually cut off from the internet because live people felt threatened, I would have liked to hear about that debate. Whoa. A lot of good points. Actually, that last one would be a really cool story. I wonder if we can get Ruthanna to write a sequel. The next week, we brought you Christmas in August with Little Brother TM by Bruce Holland Rogers, a story about a kid who gets a robot younger brother under his tree. Listeners also responded well to this story, like Devorah, who said, I've listened to this puppy about five times, and it gets creepier and creepier while being consistently hilarious. Fantastic production. The music greatly enhances the story. All those sweet sugar plums dancing while mommy turns off her kid. Great contrast. How kind of Norm to give us Christmas in August. Yep, I'm too good to you people. Jonathan C.G., who I got to hang out with over DragonCon this week with his lovely wife and mom, said, Love this little tale. The hook at the end does that rare thing in science fiction, a twist that isn't obnoxious. The story would stand on its own merit without it, so this was just icing on the cake. Finally, newcomer to the forums, J. Ronald Lee liked it, but had some suggestions, saying, and there's a spoiler here, kids, so cover your ears for like 10 seconds. Enjoyable, but fairly light. I felt the hook could have been set better. I would have liked to have felt a little more apprehension when Mother began feeling for the button. There you go. Join our forums, say hello, comment on stories, vote for unholy weapon-enhanced political figure abominations doing combat with their various genetic modifications. Really, we have visuals, actually. All off of our discussion forums, which you can find off our main page at drabblecast.org. Write a hundred character not counting spaces twitfix story and post it up in our weekly contest thread. The ring is currently dominated by a few key heavyweights right now. See if you've got what it takes to kick him off the hill. Like, Fiverr was able to do again this week, with a really fantastic little two-sentence Lovecraft parody story. Tis twat, follow us on Twitter for the goods. You know what would really rock, and only take a few minutes? If you wrote us a quick review on iTunes, or wherever you pick up our feed, so we can grab more attention and snag more new listeners. Oh, <laughs> don't worry. You'll still be our favorite listeners forever, ever, but we think it might be time to see some other people also.
if you're into that. Hey, times are tough out there, but they've been tougher. Statistics show that while all other businesses failed, people actually gave more to short fiction podcasts during the Great Depression than any other time between 1900 and 1950. I didn't make that up. It's the dad burn truth. So really, there's no reason at all not to go to our website right now, travelcast.org, and push the big five bucks a month button to give us money for something you otherwise could get just as easily for free. Oh, crap. Well, okay, there's that one reason not to do it, I guess, but dang it, I suck at this. Just do it anyways. You don't have to, but if nobody did, then we'd be voila. And if you do, and enough people do, I promise you that you will hear great and wondrous things happen on this show when we can afford them. And that leads right into our kick-ass donor of the week. Fred Greenhall. Fred found us through the Drabblecast forums moderator and spooky story contributor Kevin Anderson. He's an audio writer and producer who lives in an off-grid, yurt-inspired octagon deep in the woods of Alfred, Maine. He writes and produces his own audio drama for Final Rune Productions at finalrune.com. And if you don't know what an audio drama is, then check out his weekly podcast, Radio Drama Revival, at radiodramarevival.com, where he features the best in contemporary audio drama from around the world. Fred also writes fiction and hopes he can write a story one day weird enough to make it on the Drabblecast. Don't worry, Fred. Keep on trying. Heck, if Kevin Anderson can do it, then anyone can, huh? (laughs) I mean, literally, anyone. Even a Norwegian halibut fisherman missing his entire frontal lobe could probably do it. (laughs) I mean, even the semi-conscious conjoined fetus hanging limply from the neck of an Eskimo walrus wrangler could probably do it. (laughs) I mean, even Michael Jackson's moonwalking, reanimated cor- What? What? Why is that offensive? What, you don't think... You think we'd reject him? What, you're the insensitive bastard. Oh, screw you if you don't think he could write good speculative fiction as a zombie. (laughs) Just plain, Kevin. We love you. And we love you too, Fred. I haven't had a chance to check out Radio Drama Revival yet, but I did wallow around in Final Rune Productions for a while, and must give it a wholehearted eight tentacles up. It's good stuff. Check them out. Again, that's finalrune.com and we'll have it in our show notes. So, that's our show. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it or sell it without asking, but feel free to share it with all your friends before murdering them to acquire their remarkable facial hair. Special thanks to Jonathan Van Gilder for this week's art. He's got some really amazing photography that you should definitely check out at jvgphoto.com, especially if you need headshots or portraits, some of the best work I've ever seen. Our staff is made up of co-editors, Luke, I'm a cocky yet sincerely self-conscious bastard when I'm drunk, Coddington, and Kendall, uh, why'd I have to get married a few months ago? I should have waited until after Dragon Con, Marchman. And yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that caterpillars are fuzzy and they turn into butterflies. Worms are slimy, but both halves go on living. Noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all splurred when slurred